Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the Center in person and online. I'm Melody Rowell, the Center's podcast producer. On February 5th, Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, moderated a panel hosted by the National Council for the Social Studies as a part of their annual conference. The panel featured three former U.S. Secretaries of Education. Rod Page served from 2001 to 2005 under President George W. Bush. Arnie Duncan served from 2009 to 2015 under President Obama. And John B. King Jr. served from 2016 to 2017 also under President Obama. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Welcome, everyone, to this incredibly meaningful discussion. What an honor it is to convene America's most distinguished educators to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the National Council for the Social Studies and to talk about the importance of studying civics and the Constitution. Our panelists are so distinguished that I'm just going to introduce them as the Distinguished public servants they are by saying that Rod Page was the seventh U.S. Uh, Secretary of Education, uh, John B. King was the 10th U.S. Secretary of Education, and Arnie Duncan was the ninth U.S. Secretary of Education. We're going to learn about them in the course of this discussion, but I thought I would begin in, in chronological order of service with you, Secretary Page. Uh, you have such a distinguished background as an educator including you were the son of a school principal and a librarian. You uh, were a top educator in the George W. Bush administration. You were with President Bush when 9-11 happened. Give us a sense of your own educational background. Are there particularly favorite teachers that you had in middle school or high school or college that kindled your interest in education and made you want to devote your life to being an educator? Thank you. And uh, happy to be on the panel with such distinguished people. Friends uh, I've had for many years, congratulations for former Secretaries of Education. You did a great job, and I really appreciate your company and the work and the work that you did. Another thing to distinguish me from this, from the other parts of this, this group, is age. I'm clearly the oldest one. I'm actually in my late 80s, and what you have to understand is I grew up in Mississippi. And Mississippi, in my teenage days, was a different state than it is now. And you can imagine without me going into details uh, on the experiences that we dealt with. Now, I had many wonderful teachers in elementary school, middle school, high school, and even the university college, the Jackson State University where I attended college. But the most unique one happened when I was a graduate student at the University of Indiana, Professor Bookwalder, an Anglo teacher. Different things going on here. Now, first, my first real experience with a white teacher, and I'm not sure that he had much experience with a Southern person from a segregated community like me, but everything was new to me. And I was determined to make sure that I looked good and did the work that people would expect me to do. So I studied it hard, worked on it real hard. And he was a real challenge to me, but I ended up getting a good, great grade, one of the best grades in there. And they looked into me pretty, pretty good. But Bookwalder at the University of Indiana was a teacher that made an impression on me about teaching that will never go away. I enjoyed it. And, and, I, and, I, and I think it did a lot for me as well. Beautiful. So inspiring. Thank you for sharing the uh, light of 
Um, Mr. Bookwalder, and uh, reminding us how important those influences are. Uh, Arnie Duncan, you're, you're next in uh, chronological order. Um, you had a wonderful uh, education as well. We were actually in the same college class where you majored in sociology, you were co-captain of the basketball team, uh, and you went on to an extraordinarily distinguished career in education as chief executive officer of the Chicago Public Schools before uh, becoming Secretary of Education in the Obama administration. Can you share any really meaningful teachers you had in middle school, high school, or college that influenced your decision to go into education? Sure, happy to. And, and Secretary Page isn't just the oldest. He's also the strongest of us all today. And our security guards used to always give me, uh, talk trash to me. I'd go to the weight room and they'd say, oh, you can't do anything like Secretary Page. So he's... <laughs> <laughs> He's a humble man, but, uh, and I, I will say it's, it's interesting. It's great to do this stuff together. But when I was running the Chicago Public Schools, he was Secretary of Education. And I will always, always remember how kind he was to me, how thoughtful he was, and how he sort of helped me to mentor me and help me learn and grow. And to see, you know, John have a, uh, be my successor, it's just, it's, it's, pretty, it's, it's pretty profound. I'll say the one thing that's interesting that, that binds us all together is we all come from educators. All of our, all of our, you know, families were educators, and so my you know, John will tell his story, which is incredibly powerful, as is Rod's. But my, my dad taught here at the University of Chicago. I lived two blocks from where I grew up on campus. My mother ran an inner city tutoring program since before I was born, and it does not make us better than anyone. It doesn't make us smarter than anyone. Um, we were lucky to have parents who valued education, who they, who they themselves had received education. I think what all of us have done in our different ways is try and create those kinds of opportunities for children who weren't blessed to grow up in families surrounded by, by books. And I always joke as a kid, we didn't have a TV in our house. We had a whole lot of books and, and no TV. I used to sneak to my, my, uh, my friend's house to watch TV sometimes. But um, uh, teacher, I always talk about my, my favorite teacher was uh, Mr. Campbell, English teacher in high school. At that point, we didn't have computers, so we would turn our papers in with, with blue ink, and uh, she would come back with probably more red ink than blue ink, and she cared so much about what we were thinking and how we were expressing ourselves and really challenged me to, to think deeply. Um, gave me, I think, the courage that there were no right or wrong answers, that you just had to sort of express your truth, and that was good enough, whatever that was and uh, had vigorous debates in class and you know, taught people how to think and be honest and receive feedback and give, give good feedback. And uh, it's sort of crazy. My, my daughter went to that school you know, 30 plus years later and she was fortunate enough to be taught by her as well. And uh, it's interesting in a school full of fantastic teachers, it's remarkable how many alums point to Miss McCampbell as the best teacher. It's just, it's a, it's a fast, you know, you sort of, you get older, talk to folks about it. And that the number of us who point back to that one teacher is pretty amazing. And it just shows how incredibly impactful um, educators can be on, on so many lives. So powerful. Thank you for sharing the story of Miss McCampbell. And you put it so powerfully. She taught you that there were no right or wrong answers and you just had to express your truth. All right, Secretary King, you know the question because uh, um, your colleagues have answered it. You also have an extraordinarily powerful uh, education background and uh, you, were, uh, you began your career as a high school social studies teacher and middle school principal. Uh, would you like to share any particular teachers you had in middle school, high school or college and how they influenced your decision to devote yourself to education? Absolutely. Well, well thank, thanks for framing the question this way. And, and it's always an honor to be with Secretary Page and Secretary Duncan. Um, you know, 
for me, school played such a vital role in my life. Both my parents were educators. My mom was a teacher and counselor. My dad was a teacher and administrator, but they both passed away when I was little. Uh, my mom when I was eight, October of my fourth grade year, and then my dad when I was 12. And the period when it was just my dad and me, my dad was struggling with Alzheimer's. So home was incredibly difficult. I didn't know what my father would be like from one night to the next. Some nights he talked to me, some nights he wouldn't at all. Some nights he'd be sad, angry, even violent. And the thing that saved me was school, New York City Public Schools. It was the one place that was safe and consistent and nurturing. And I really was blessed to have a series of, of phenomenal teachers um, who gave me a sense of hope and purpose. And one teacher in particular, Ms. D, my seventh grade social studies teacher, I think is in many ways very responsible for me becoming a social studies teacher. Because at that point, my father was very sick. I was figuring out how to get food in our house, just keeping our household going. And the one place where I could not think about all of that and just be a kid was in Miss D's social studies class. She was a teacher and an actress. Uh, she made class super engaging and interesting. And I remember there was a period where my father was very sick. And the thing that, that kept me going was the Aztec newscast project that we were doing in Miss D's class. And I was the Aztec sportscaster in the news project. And the most important thing in the world to me at that moment was to be the best Aztec sportscaster there had ever been. And years later, I went back to Mark Twain Junior High School in Coney Island to be principal for a day. I was one of our state commissioner of education in New York. Ms. D was still teaching in the same classroom. I walked in the room. She said, oh my gosh, John, I have something to show you. And she goes to the back of the room and, and there's, you know, as often happens with social studies teachers, these huge closets of, of materials. And she climbed up on a desk and starts rifling through things above one of the closets. And she pulls out the, um, a poster from our Aztec newscast with pictures of each of us in our different uh, newscaster roles and proceeds to tell me about the different students and where they've gone and, and what's happened to them. And I just, her passion for kids and the and the social studies content really inspired me i think to help drive me to choose to be a social studies teacher beautiful her passion for the kids and for the content and it's so powerful listening to the three of you how the influence of these teachers glows within us decades later they change our lives i, I have to at this moment um express gratitude to my great social studies uh, teacher in high school jeffrey gund who kindled my love for the Constitution and uh, set me on this path. And you're, you're performing the most important role in uh, teaching history and social studies and changing people's lives. Okay, for this next round, I would like to ask you about why it is important to learn social studies and civics and history. All three of you recently uh, co-signed uh, an op-ed uh, in the Wall Street Journal called America Needs History and Civics Education to Promote Unity. Uh, you signed it, the three of you, with Lamar Alexander, Richard Riley, and Margaret uh, Spellings, all distinguished uh, for, former secretaries. And uh, you endorsed a framework for American democracy that a bunch of groups have put together about um, civics. But I, I want to ask you just why you think it's important to learn civics and history and social studies. Many of you have taught it yourself. Um, uh, Secretary uh, Page, why is it important? 
First Christ is something that has happened that you learned about and you can compare with what is, go what is going on now. It's very, very important that you understand that. And it's very interesting. For example, I really appreciate listening to the two former secretaries talk a little bit about the history. It was just a glimpse of that history and experience. And I found wonderful information. And it reminded me that even in high school and, and in college, history was such an important, exciting experience for me because you learn about new things, how the world works. Now, in my particular case, that history that I experienced was sometimes kind of a rough, rough, rough history. I don't have to tell you a lot about what was going on in the Deep South during my early, early days. But coming from that, then experiencing uh, a university like the University of Indiana just fascinated me and gave me such an exciting view of the world and all the different things that are going on all across the world that I could learn from, that I could see how they handle the situation and problems like that. and gave me some clues on how to go forward with, with things like that. History is a fascinating subject, uh, and I enjoyed it very much, and I enjoyed teaching it as well. What a powerful case for history. It's exciting. It's fascinating. It teaches you about the world. It teaches you about other perspectives, and it opens up entire new vistas. Secretary Duncan, why do you think that teaching and learning about history and civics is important? Well, first, I just want to build on something you said. Just thank all the teachers watching. This is a difficult time at multiple, multiple levels for, for folks to be teachers, to be principals, to be educators in general. And just uh, the difference you're making at a, a really uh, critical time in our nation's history. I can't tell you personally how, how thankful and appreciative I am. Uh, I always try and be very honest for better or worse. And I will say things that oh, I thought all my life were just bedrocks, you know, unmovable, unshakable, uh, including our very democracy <laughs> um, over the past five, six years, um, my faith and confidence that those things cannot be shaken um, has been shattered. And it's so critically important to understand it's the role of every generation, not just to understand history, but to build upon it and to create new history. And the only way I know how to do that is we understand um, the, the beauty of our country and the difficulties in our country. And whether it's Dr. Page and so many others talking about growing up in, you know, down South and that lived experience, um, that's not black history, that's American history, that's, that's our history. John hasn't talked, but he has an unbelievably powerful personal story of right now, right now living not too far from where his ancestors were enslaved. And that's, that's American history. <laughs> Um, that's not down south. I don't know, you know, Maryland, I don't consider that down south. And so we have to understand our history, uh, the good, the bad, and ugly. We have to learn from it. Um, it is nothing personal. <laughs> it is not an indictment of, of anybody. But if we're going to keep building a stronger nation, if we're going to keep trying to build a more perfect union, denying these things or running from them, I think condemns us to repeat history. You know, those that don't learn history repeat it. And there's just so much today that uh, concerns me. There's no one easy answer, but helping all children across the country, right? You know, doesn't matter geography, race, ethnicity, have all children understand all of our history, 
I think is one of the most powerful things we can do to put our, our country in a position, not, never to be perfect, but to be a much better country 20 years from now or 30 years from now, if we do a, a great job, an honest job of educating our nation's youth today. Beautifully put. We have to understand the beauties and difficulties of our history, you said, and we have to study our history, the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, helping our students to understand all of history in order to avoid repeating it. Uh, Secretary King, it'd be wonderful if you could tell the story about what it's like to live not far from where your ancestors were enslaved, and then tell us why you think it is important to study history. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to you from Silver Spring, Maryland, where I live, Montgomery County. My great-grandfather was enslaved in Gaithersburg, Maryland, about 25 miles from where I live. And, you know, like most African-American families, we knew there was a history in slavery, and we knew that was in Maryland, but we didn't know the exact place. And a few years ago, we learned the exact property where my great-grandfather was enslaved. Turns out the property is still owned by the family that are direct line descendants of the family that enslaved my family. And um, when we learned that, we also learned that they've maintained the property just as it was in the 1860s. Same main house that was built in the 1700s and the cabin that my great-grandfather and his family lived in still standing on the property. So we went through this conversation as a family, you know, how do we introduce ourselves to this family? Do we write them a letter? Do we call them? Do we just show up? Uh, so we decided my cousin just showed up, introduced herself and started this conversation about our shared history. And now we've gotten to be friends with the family and have spent quite a bit of time on the property. Um, and it's pretty profound to stand inside of that cabin and, you know, when I do, I really contemplate two things. One, the intense cruelty and intimacy of the institution of slavery. That cabin is not 30 yards from the main house. So these were two families living in the same physical space, one owning the other. And as Arnie pointed out, so many of our challenges today are tied to that history, the history of slavery, the history of segregation, the history of redlining. And we have to understand that. We have to appreciate that if we want to move forward as a country. But the other thing I contemplate in that cabin is how profound it is that in my family, we went in three generations from enslaved in that cabin to serving in the cabinet of the first black president. And so it, the history there is both a reflection of what is hard and ugly and painful about our history, but also the promise of progress. And Secretary Page's personal journey reflects that as well. There's, and, and we need our kids to understand that. One of my fears in this moment is we have folks who are saying, let's not talk about the hard parts. Let's not talk about the difficult things. It might make people uncomfortable. Well, the truth is uh, learning sometimes has to be uncomfortable so that you are thinking and doing the work to, to analyze where we've been and how we move forward. Wow, thank you for sharing that incredibly powerful story. It is extraordinary that in Gaithersburg, so close to Maryland and Washington, DC, you, uh, your ancestors have, uh, were enslaved and that you were able to stand on that spot and experience that. And you're so powerful to remind us of the importance of telling the whole story uh, so that we can learn from it. 
I want on this next round to ask you about how to teach history in this extraordinarily polarized times. Uh, the National Constitution Center has launched these really meaningful Constitution 101 classes on that interactive Constitution platform that you mentioned. It's now gotten 54 million hits since we launched in 2015. And the live classes are getting hundreds of thousands of students. The basic approach is to bring together people of differing points of view and tell the whole story honestly, and to teach students to separate their political from their constitutional views and to tell history uh, through storytelling um, from beginning to end. Secretary Page, um, how do you suggest that our friends, our teachers who are listening, manage to teach history um, in this polarized time and to teach it honestly and compellingly? First place, I, I would like to see all history teachers be lovers of history. I understand the dynamics of, of, of history. What, what strikes me is there's so much change in dynamics that's, that's history embeds that you can't take it in one period of time and make a wide judgment of how the world works. For, for example, I, I grew up in Mississippi and, and I'm 88 years old now. So you, you can imagine what my elementary and secondary and high school days were like uh, in, 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 in the state. But that's nothing like the state now. Wonderful state. Lots of progress, completely different from those dynamic days during that period of time. And it's, it's always important that, that you understand the dynamics of history, how it changes things, how it makes things different from how it, how it, how it used to be. Uh, and he, most people to take one period of history and make, a, make an analysis that that, that that's a decision that they can make. They can't make a decision based on a special period of history unless they take all of history to be considered. The history is a dynamic subject and you need to understand history to understand the moment that you're in now. The moment you're in now is a result of what happened before, which is a result of what happened before, which is a result of what happened before. If you don't understand those dynamics, you can't understand the moment you're dealing with now. So history is a very important subject. I would like to see history become a more required course in curricular situations across the United States, because you've got to know what happened before now to understand what's going on now. Wow, what you, you just distilled the, the, the wisdom. To teach history, you have to be a lover of history. You have to love it, and you have to love it and understand how it changes and how dynamic it is and describing the changes you experienced is so important and re requiring history would be so meaningful. Uh, Secretary Duncan, how should our friends uh, be guided as they teach history? Well, it's easy for us to, to say and pontificate, they're doing it every day. So it's much harder for them than for us to sit here and, and do it. But just, just a couple of thoughts to address your first point. Um, it is, Sadly true that our country is probably as polarized, as divided as we've been at any recent moment in history, and that's real. But in my mind, that polarization is much more among us as, as adults and much less so among children. And I have right now much more faith, frankly, in young people than I do in, do in adults. And I think one of the best things we could do as teachers is just like we're doing now from you know across the country, bringing folks together via technology 
and just having kids share their lived experiences. And whether it's here in Chicago or Maryland or Mississippi or wherever it might be, um, just having kids talk to each other and get to know each other and have those conversations and tell their family histories. And you, know, you can tie this in. And you know, sometimes I think history can be too dry if it's all facts and memorization. But when you hear the, the oral histories of a, of, a, of a Rod Page or John King and so many folks around the country, um, it brings it to life in a really powerful way. So I think less facts, less just memorization, more storytelling, um, more debate, and more sharing across the country and, you know, and, and grow globally. And that's, that's become you know, so much easier today than just you know, three or five years ago. Um, the final thing I'll say that, that the pandemic has taught us so many tough lessons, but for me, one of the biggest lessons is just how interconnected, how interdependent we are. And if we continue to just fight each other, it's like mutual destruction. And so having young people come together, they, let me just be clear, not to agree on everything, but to build some trust and to build some understanding and not to convince someone that you're right and they're wrong, but just to understand their lived experiences, that for me would be extraordinarily powerful. And then the, the final thing, just to build on what, what John said, I just think it's so important that I think the point of anything in life, the only way I know how to grow, whether it's you know, in a relationship or educationally or athletically, is you have to make yourself uncomfortable. You have to stretch yourself. And if the whole goal is to stay in the comfort zone, that might feel good, but I don't know how you go anywhere if you're in a comfort zone. And so for me, rather than running away from uncomfortable situations in life, we need to run towards them and, and again, learn from them and, and grow from them. And absent that, uh, it, it feels, it, again, maybe it feels more secure, but it feels unbelievably hollow to me if we're not willing to do that. And again, those are maybe hard skills to, to learn as an adult. But if our kids can learn to stretch themselves and make themselves uncomfortable and fail and struggle, boy, that, that's, for me, honestly, that's music to my ears. That's exactly the kind of skill set and mindset and characteristics that will make our kids successful in whatever they do the rest of their lives. And again, what better way to do that than in, in, a, in a social studies classroom? So powerful. I have to reaffirm those points because they're so true. You said kids, unlike adults, really haven't yet been polarized and simply bringing together students of different perspectives uh, for respectful disagreement and agreement to stretch their minds to make them uncomfortable is so meaningful and technology allows us to do this. And when COVID hit, the Constitution Center started teaching live online classes on the Constitution. We reached 250,000 kids live and it was so meaningful to bring together students from uh, Oklahoma and uh, California and across the country for these respectful uh, debates with agreement and disagreement, and then to introduce them to these scholars, which we do every week, from totally different perspectives, from Hassan Kwame Jeffries to Robert George to Eric Foner. Technology allows us to do this. And Secretary Duncan, I really think you've just galvanized all of us as teachers to work together to use this technology to bring together uh, kids from across the country for exactly the kind of meaningful civil dialogue and debate you were talking about. All right, Secretary King, same question with some concrete suggestions maybe on how should our friends think about teaching history? Well, I'm tempted to just say amen to everything that Secretary Page and Secretary Duncan said. I, you know, the, the thing, two things I would raise. One is, I think in this moment, there's a set of skills for citizenship and civic participation that we can build into social studies education. I know this is a priority for NCSS and so many of the folks who are watching. 
but having kids think about how do I evaluate the validity of a source and the reliability of a source so critical in this moment when they are flooded with these different messages from social media and they really have to bring a rigorous eye to evaluate the quality of the information you know that the skills of presenting an argument in writing and orally um, the skills of communicating whether it's in debate or in testimony you know how do you share information with public officials in a way that might move them to do something different uh, all those citizenship skills, I think, have to be built in, and there are opportunities to help kids apply them. You know, I think about my my daughters have gone to Blair High School here in Montgomery County, and one of the assignments that they have in one grade, you write an essay on a controversial topic, taking one side, and then in the next grade, you write the same essay, but from the other side, so that you get practice in evaluating the, the quality of arguments and taking the perspective of someone who has a different view from yours. They also do a model Congress activity and a model courtroom and mock trial kind of activity. Those kinds of hands-on learning experiences, I think, are part of how we get kids to see history and social studies not as something that they just memorize, but something that they practice every day in their lives. Uh, and it's a way to, to maximize student engagement and enthusiasm about learning history and learning social studies. That's so very important. The practice of learning civil disagreement to articulate your positions clearly, to be able to present both sides, and digital literacy that allows you to skeptically evaluate uh, sources so that you can distinguish truth from falsehood are all crucially important. That's why I, I um, don't mean to keep plugging the, the NCC's material, but this model of bringing together liberal and conservative scholars to write about every clause of the constitution, exploring areas of agreement and disagreement, and encouraging students to read both majority opinions and dissents is a model of exactly that kind of training in the habits of civil dialogue and debate. I think I'm learning so much from this discussion. I think we might take another round on it. Secretary Page, Secretary King just introduced the crucial question of digital literacy. Um, we're having a big national debate about the distinction between misinformation and disinformation. It's sometimes a little elusive, but as I understand it, disinformation is willful spreading of lies and misinformation is sharing of falsehoods maybe inadvertently, but how can we educate our students to, to distinguish truth from misinformation and disinformation? You know, I wish I had a specific answer to that, but that's a difficult question that I think needs a lot of consideration and a lot of thought. So I guess simply say that the particular issues need to be put in front of them and discussed and the point of view of how they became as they are, what brought them to that point of view, tied in with the origin of our nation, how we work, how we make how we make decisions. I live in Texas, and now I'm witnessing an influx of immigrants from around the world, diversity pouring into our state. At the same time, democracy uh, is, is being influenced influenced by that. So it fascinates me on how there's no specific set of how things are, is things how how things change how the world fluctuates. And if you don't know what happened before, you can't really understand what's going on now. You, know, you gotta understand how it came to be that way. History is a 
very important subject. And I would like to see it become more related to required courses that students have to take in different areas because it's, it's a necessity that you understand how this nation developed itself, the dynamics of what took place to bring it to the point of where it is now. If you don't understand that, you can't really have a full understanding of what's going on in front of you at, at this moment because what you see is just a part of what really is. Secretary, you've raised this point so powerfully. Just the, the urgent importance of not requiring just uh, studying history and how we've lost sight of it. It's so striking. The, the letters of the founders all are all about teaching history. Washington, education of the youth in the science of government is necessary for the success of the Republic. Jefferson is always sending all these kids who are going to law school, these friends of his uh, uh kids are going to law school and he'll send them lists and he said, you got to study history. Here's the Roman history, the Greek history, as well as American. And you are just hitting that home, especially talking about that influx of immigrants as well, where you live. Secretary Duncan, uh, how, how, teach, how to teach digital literacy and distinguishing between misinformation and disinformation? Well, I'll make a plug, not just for, for history, which is, you know, folks here have so eloquently pushed, but just for trying to understand current events better. And I'll give you just, these are facts, they're indisputable, they are uncomfortable, but our citizens of the United States have died at a much higher rate from COVID than in other countries. And our citizens of the United States die from gun violence at much higher rates than other countries. So that's, those are facts. Um, I think for young people to understand why that is true, what choices we make to, to allow those things to be true, where has, to your two points, misinformation and disinformation contributed to higher death rates? And where the, the, the easy thing to do today is the United States isn't a bubble. These are issues that, that affect every, you know, every country on the planet. And so comparing what's happened in the United States, our response to COVID, um, whether we choose to protect our children or not from gun violence, um, other countries have made some very different choices than us. And on a factual basis, uh, fewer of them have died, fewer of them have been killed. And these are, you know, again, not easy uh, debates, not easy facts to, to try and uncover, but understanding the choices we made relative to other countries and understanding how misinformation and disinformation um, contributes to, to, uh, to life and death here. And so I, I just raised that to say, these are consequential issues. It's not just, I sort of, think something that might be right or might be wrong, um, what I think and then how I behave um, today because we're so interconnected, interdependent, that affects my neighbor's health and safety. Um, that affects people in my community's health and safety. And having our children, again, understand how much we need each other and how much we need to understand that basic fact base, we can have different responses to it. Um, but that is, is, it just feels for me so critically important to have those, those tough conversations, not just on history, um, but on current events that our kids are living with every single day that's so relevant to, to everything they're doing, you know, going to school. <laughs> Do they wear a mask? Do they not wear a mask? They worry about you know, being shot going to school or not. This is stuff that our kids, unfortunately, tragically, um, that's part of their lived experience across the country every single day today. Crucially important, uh, especially for our social studies teachers, uh, issues like uh, vaccination and gun violence are 
being heard by the Supreme Court as we speak. And you can't study history without also studying how the courts and society are grappling with these questions and thinking about ways of teaching that, those crucially important questions in a nonpartisan fact-based way is uh, so very, very important indeed. Secretary King, uh, misinformation, disinformation, and how to teach current events uh, from a nonpartisan perspective. Yeah, I mean, the crucial issue, I, I think primary source documents in history are very valuable to try to get students to think about not just how the story is summarized in a textbook, but here's the perspective of someone who lived through that moment. You know, here's a document that shows you what newspapers were saying at the time about that issue. And here's what we've learned since and how um, we might think about it differently today. You know, that primary source document experience, I think is very, is very valuable to, to teach that skill of discernment. I also think this is a real opportunity for some interdisciplinary work that where you ask students to kind of see the world from perspectives different from their own. Um, you know, I remember uh, an event that we did uh, at the White House with President Obama, and it was with a group of students who were part of a White House mentoring program. And so it was a very small group, a few cabinet members, the president, the students in the mentoring program, uh, just having lunch in the White House. Kind of very cool experience. And one of the things that happened in the conversation, a student asked the president, what were some of the keys to his success? And he really took the question very uh, earnestly and, and, and walked through some things. And one of the powerful points he made to the young people was how important reading was to his success and made the argument that when you're reading, uh, whether it's a, a nonfiction text or a fictional text, you get to inhabit the worldview of the central character, of the person who's who's the subject of a biography or the person who's written an autobiography, you get to see the world from their perspective. And that ability to look at issues from different perspectives, he said was so helpful to him in leadership because you really do have to, uh, to reach compromise, to, to uh, tackle uh, complex problems, you do have to think about it from different vantage points. And he talked about how reading made that possible. So the opportunity for social studies teachers and English teachers to think together about how you tackle a period through primary source documents, through texts that, that are written by historians, but also through literature could be quite powerful. Yes, amen, that is so true on every level that primary source documents, primary texts, allow students, as you said, and as President Obama said, to inhabit the thoughts of the people who wrote them and to experience them from their own perspective. And I'm excited to share in that spirit, the Constitution Center is putting online a library of historic documents of the primary text of American history, starting with the philosophers who influenced the founders, uh, through the founders themselves, to the second founding, to Frederick Douglass, what to a slave is the 4th of July, to the women's suffrage advocates, to King on the Mall. And just by putting the primary sources online, we want to do exactly that, let people inhabit the documents. And we're finding too that it's the, it really is the best way to teach things in a nonpartisan way in this incredibly polarized time. Secretary King, nonpartisan teaching is tough in an incredibly polarized age. People have strong politics. How do we keep politics out of the classroom, but still ensure that our history is told honestly and thoroughly without uh, fear or favor. 
I mean, it's complicated in this moment because I think we've now taken things that used to be nonpartisan and made them partisan. You know, the idea that the um, person who wins the election gets to take office is not a partisan point. That's fundamental to democracy. So, you know, I think we we all have to grapple with the complexity of being truthful while acknowledging partisan differences. And so that may mean sharing, here are different perspectives that are, that are out there on this issue, but here's what the evidence shows. Um, but it, 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 I have to say for all the teachers here and for the field, this is a very fraught moment. You know, I think about what Governor Youngkin is doing in Virginia where there's now a tip line to report teachers if they have said something that makes students uncomfortable around issues of history and race. I mean, this it's scary. And so I think, you know, our professional responsibility is to try to equip students with a truthful account of history, the skills they need for civic participation. And that may mean some risk that people will accuse you um, of bias. And I think the best defense against that is to be able to show that you've gone to the primary source document, that your lessons reflect um, the standards for the course. But, but at the end of the day, I don't think we can be uh, afraid uh, to share the, the, the truth in our classrooms. Powerfully put. Secretary Page, what suggestions do you have about how to teach history uh, honestly uh, and also uh, in, in a nonpartisan way? You know, that, that's a really important question and one that really puzzles me a lot because there's so many different points of view. How to decide on which is the most appropriate point of view? I grew, I grew up in a very limited situation where I didn't have a chance to travel, uh, go places, do things. So I kind of filled that space with reading. And I, and I would read about, that's how I travel, by reading about things. But, 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 the, but the point of view that I got was the point of view that was displayed by the writer. And I found so many cases where different writers had completely opposite points of views about the same subject. So in, in the United States, that's the issue. Everybody has a point of view. Everybody has a possibility of writing or, or talking about it. How do we decide? How do we decide on, on, on what is the most appropriate point of view that should be used as the official one by the, by the society that our kids should learn? Now, having different points of view is an advantage, but it's also a disadvantage. So it's, it's an issue that I think that we've got, we need to have some of our best thinkers in the world, in our nation particularly, to give some thought to this. You know, in, in the more available, information is now, the more it is needed to determine what is the official view supported by our national leaders, our, our nation. What is right, what is wrong. Those are determinations that we put on kids and teachers and principals and people like that. That's very difficult to do. That's a challenge that this nation has. But one of the things, another side of it is, that's part of our freedom. <laughs> That's what makes, makes our nation great. So it's a kind of a puzzle that I think about a, a lot. And I'm not sure that I've got an answer to it yet. You're so right that it's a, such a tough and urgently important question. 
and that uh, different scholars do have completely different points of view. And really only by returning to the primary sources can we let people speak in their own minds, but it's, it's, not, it's not an easy task for teachers and it's urgently important. Secretary Duncan, in a piece called Five Ways We Can Put Aside Partisan Politics and Think Big on Education, one of your excellent suggestions was keep politics out of the classroom. How do we do it? You're getting to, to real tough questions here. I'm, I'm glad we got here. And I'll phrase my interpretation, my view of this a little bit differently. For me, we don't have a partisan divide. You know, I happen to be a Democrat. John happens to be Democrat. Secretary Page happened to be Republican or worked for a Republican administration. He worked with Democrats. We worked with Republicans, agreed on many things, disagreed on some things. That's really not the debate. For me, what's happening in our country now, it's really those that are pro-democracy and those that are not pro-democracy. And the, the, uh, you know, the thing that, again, has just humbled me and shaken me to my core is finally understanding for the first time in my life how fragile our democracy really is. And so the divide for me is not around politics or policy. It's around those that want to fight to maintain and preserve this incredible and wonderful experiment in democracy that's still very early, if you look in historical terms, or those that would move to another form of government that's authoritarianism. And so we have to deal with that openly and honest and extraordinarily real way. That, that for me is the, the, the fork in the road for our country. And absent courage, absent leadership, absent our young people understanding what's at stake, <laughs> this uh, you know, couple, couple hundred year experiment democracy could come, to a, could come to an end. And it wouldn't be the first time in history that's happened. And so that's the crux. And not to put this all on social studies teachers, or, you know, none of us can, can carry this by themselves. That's asking too much. But I just want to lay out my honest, heartfelt opinion of where we are as a nation and how critically important it is to understand that this thing just doesn't survive by itself. <laughs> In fact, absent hard work and courage and education, um, it could easily disappear. And I think what we're seeing is how fast things that have taken a couple hundred years to build, how fast they can evaporate, how fast they can erode. And that's the conversation that I think we need to be having in classrooms around the country. Wow, uh, you're so right about the fragility of the American experiment and of democratic experience more generally. And also that uh, our, our friend in the chat, uh, Roselle Clyde says, we're, we're asking educators to be more courageous than legislators. And, and, and as you suggest, uh, educators can't do it on their own. This is a, the deepest of all uh, social problems. But uh, and challenges for democracy, but educators do have a unique role in helping our students understand the habits of humility, of listening, of respect for people they disagree with, without which the experiment collapses. And that is something that is uh, we, we can do in the here and now. Um, Molly Tepeva uh, says about, uh, I, I agree with, uh, what Mr. Page is saying. And it's an interesting point that we as teachers have to determine which point of view is right or wrong for the classrooms. But technically someone's view on history is their point of view. Is it ever wrong? Just a thought. Interesting comment, Secretary Page. We have another question for you, which I'll, I'll pose to you. I wonder what Secretary Page's reaction is to the elimination of books and materials within his current state of Texas by parents. How do we as educators fight for resources without alienating the parents who we need as partners in order to succeed? The elimination of books in Texas. Exactly. 
that's <laughs> that's been something that we've been fighting about for a considerable period of time now. And I think that we got to uh, a point where everybody would have a really strong agreement on which which is right. There are some books, especially about slavery and issues like that, that I myself have found should be explained. It should be exposed to students. And there are others who feel they should not be. So that's an argument that that's, that, that's, go, that's going on between different points of view in society. So how, that's one of the things that puzzles me is how do we make those kinds of decisions? And I'm not sure I got a good answer to that person right now. Well uh, said, uh, and, and honestly said. And we have another well said for, the, for Rosella's point about asking educators to be more morally courageous. And Secretary Duncan responds to you, uh, Rosella, Clyde, that um, educators have probably always been more courageous than legislators. It's so true, Secretary Duncan, maybe amplify on that point. These are, these are all, again, complicated issues to state the obvious, but I just think this is a time for courage, and it's probably always a time for courage. And I do think teachers, again, this is, these are broad statements, generalizations, so this, you know, there's huge variation here, but I think teachers are, have, again, often maybe always been more courageous than folks in other professions, more pure heart, more altruistic, um, less, you know, bought off by whatever thing. And you know, teachers go into the profession to make a difference in young people's lives. You know, it's teachers, doctors, nurses, like that's the best of our society. And you have some legislators who have those heart and those values, and you have other legislators that have, have different motivations, different perspectives. And so it may not be fair. <laughs> It may not be right, but for me, that actually gives me hope. Who, who's really in daily contact with our children? It's our teachers. Who's inspiring them every single day? It's our teachers. And so if teachers can continue to work with courage and be willing to take some risk, which is, again, uncomfortable and difficult and, yes, unfair, um, our kids listen to what we say, but they really watch what we do. <laughs> And we can always go back to our, our, our favorite teachers. It wasn't just what they taught us intellectually. I bet some courage in there, some heart. <laughs> it's not just the intellectual part. It's always head and heart in education. And having teachers be willing to, to show that heart and show that courage. If those lessons get instilled in our young people, again, for the long haul, for the next 50 years, five decades of our future, um, that makes me very optimistic about where we can go. And if our young people and our teachers are engaged in our democracy, um, if we don't like books being banned in Texas, then we have to vote in Texas. We have to participate. We have to run for school boards. We have to be the secretary of education in, in Texas. And uh, you know, these are all things that are not you know, short term. We're in a difficult, I would say even dark time in our nation's history. But the only way we get out of that is by working together, by engaging, by fighting for democracy and by showing courage. And where teachers are leading there, that gives me tremendous hope, tremendous hope about where we can go. Thank you so much for the inspiring call outs to courage. And I have to share Justice Brandeis's inspiring thought that those who won our independence valued liberty as an end, as a means. They believe liberty to be the secret of happiness and courage to be the secret of liberty. He's quoting Pericles' funeral oration, which he was so inspired by. He read Alfred Zimmern's book, The Greek Commonwealth, and was uh, saw the connection between courage and education and liberty. We have uh, a great 
question about control over the curriculum, Secretary King. Uh, Rizal Clyde asks again, there's an idea that parents deserve more control over the curriculum and have the right to withdraw their children from instruction. This is, again, the toughest question uh, today, but who, who decides? Legislators, parents, teachers, some combination? There's always a combination, and, and we need parents, you know, certainly as partners in schools. Um, but public education is part of a democratic project. And as a democracy, we have to think together about what it's important for our students to learn, both the knowledge it's important for them to have and the skills it's important for them to have. And social studies teachers in this moment are the, in many ways, the defenders of that. You know, we have to teach the Holocaust in our classrooms. And there are Holocaust deniers in the world, but they don't get equal time in our classrooms because the truth is the Holocaust happened. Uh, we have to teach the history of Japanese American internment. In fact, I think it's crucial that students know that history so that we can understand how decisions about civil liberties can sometimes be, be made uh, in misguided ways because of a sense of uh, of fear and urgency about responding to a crisis. And students will be better prepared as citizens if they know that history. And so I, I think you know, we develop standards together through a democratic process. The state has a process to create standards. And then we as teachers, I think, have to carry the responsibility to make those standards come to life in our classrooms. Of course, always in conversation with parents. Uh, but if a parent stands up and says, I don't want my child ever to learn about the Holocaust, that, that, that's, not, that's not right. That's not part of the democratic process of how we arrive at a shared vision for public education. Powerfully put. Thank you so much, uh, Secretaries uh, Page, Duncan, and King, for an extraordinary conversation. Raymond Wicks speaks for everyone, I'm sure, when he says thank you for the thoughtful and enlightened conversation about difficult questions. Only venues like this one provided by NCSS can make it available. I would like to offer the NCC as a platform to continue conversations like this, both convening you, uh, America's extraordinarily thoughtful educators, for dialogues with teachers about how to teach history and civics, and also for bringing students of different perspectives together from across the country for the kind of dialogues we're talking about. Uh, we have the capacity using this great technology to bring together people of different perspectives. And we all know as teachers, there's no more important conversation to have. Secretary King, you put it so well when you said we teachers, and that's what all of us are on this call, the, 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 uh, we the panelists and, and the audience. We are learners and teachers trying to inspire others to learn and teach history so that we can keep this great republic that we have as Americans. Uh, Secretary Page, Duncan, and King, thanks for a really memorable and meaningful conversation. And thanks to all for listening. Thank you. Also, I want to make how much I appreciate the great work that Secretary Duncan and Secretary King did. You were great at it. Thank you so much. You do right back at you, Secretary Page. Yes, you did a great job. We, we, we learned from the best. Thanks, guys. Great to see you. This episode was produced by me, Melody Rowell. Many thanks to the National Council for the Social Studies for allowing us to share this conversation with you. Visit constitutioncenter.org debate 
to find the full lineup of our upcoming shows and register to join us virtually. You can join us via Zoom, watch our live YouTube stream, or watch the recorded videos after the fact in our media library at constitutioncenter.org constitution. As always, we'll share those programs on the podcast too, so be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you like the show, you can help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or by following us on Spotify. Find us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Melody Rowell.